Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. Good morning. It's good to see you. You can't not be awake on a day like today, right? It's a beautiful day, and I am thrilled to welcome you here today. We have a a guest speaker uh, that I am very excited to introduce to you this morning. Uh, Dr. Jason K. Allen is the president of Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, and uh, over the last several years has become a friend, and when I learned that we had the opportunity to have him in, I was thrilled to invite him in, specifically to this season of our church's life when we're in this entrusted campaign. Um, As we look today specifically at leading the mission and what it is to be a leader in the mission, how I'm excited about this. Let me just tell you, uh, he's been here before, he's spoken to us before, so he's not new to many of you, Um, but I want to share uh, more than just a formal introduction, some personal words of why it is for me a privilege to be able to serve as a trustee at Midwestern Seminary. Uh, Now in his 12th year, the story of the seminary is one of divine providence and one of miraculous proportion and one of faithful leadership. Uh, When I was considering my own advancement in education a number of years ago, prior to his coming to Midwestern, uh, it was not really a seminary on the radar. We, as pastors across the state, all thought it would be closing because of the dire situation that it was in. But he came to a place that others didn't want to go, and he's led it to become the place that everybody wants to be. Uh, That's phenomenal, friends. I can't overstate that. I don't know that it was technically the smallest of all seminaries at its point of almost closing, but I can tell you now, as of our last trustee meeting, it probably, by the records of this next year, will be known as the largest seminary in North America. Friends, this isn't just a success story. It's a complete turnaround. He's gathered a faculty of scholars that are second to none, He's grown the campus, listen to this, by over $50 million in 10 years, and he's done it debt-free. That's huge. And next year, they will, I think next year, maybe late this year, and this isn't even public knowledge yet, so I may get in trouble for telling you. He will bring in the largest collection of Charles Spurgeon's library and personal effects in the whole world. So, Kansas City, Missouri, Midwestern Baptist Seminary, Spurgeon College, the Spurgeon Library will now be home to the largest collection of one of the greatest preachers ever known to man and surely one of the greatest preachers in modern history. And so that is not insignificant. Uh, It's a privilege for us today. Why is this so important? Well, the vision of Midwestern is training leaders for the church and what a privilege that is. He's trained more than a dozen of our leaders and even more that are making plans to attend. So even though some of you haven't known this, his leadership 
influence has directly impacted the life of this church and continues to do so. As some of our elders have been trained in uh, studying theology and biblical studies, some of our staff and even many who are not on staff. First and foremost, he's done it though by bringing a priority commitment to the expository preaching of God's word and the priority of pastoral ministry in the church. And I can tell you that's not on the front ticker of so many churches' lives today, but you are privileged today to hear from Dr. Allen. And I'll I'll say this and then I'll be quiet and sit down. Uh, In the North Community Room between services, there are several books out there that I ask him to bring uh, to make available to you. And so go please and find those. One of those is turn around the story of uh, that, that, that tells the story of Midwestern and some other books that we use even with our um, young men and women who are considering a call uh, to the ministry. So Dr. Allen, would you please come and share the word with us this morning? Thank you, Ryan. Well, I am delighted to be with you guys this morning. Uh, My wife and our kids and my mother-in-law have been in Branson the last few days, and we've enjoyed stunning weather and all the beauty and uh, enjoyment that is the Branson area. They'll be in the later service. So I I gave them a reprieve, didn't make them come to sit through all three uh, with me and you. I said, you guys come to the later service. They'll be here here a little later. I'll tell you why I love LifePoint Church, and I have been here several times before. And um, the, the primary reason why I love the church is because I know and love your pastor Lane and his wife, Kristen. And over the years, I've been able to see up close how much he loves this congregation. And sometimes pastors who've been in a church for you know, many years and now, and now even decades, it's a little bit like uh, those who've been married for many years and even decades. Like they still love their spouse, but at, at times you see someone, they're, they're still thankful they're married, but like the romance has worn off a little bit and it looks a little dull and a little apathetic. And sometimes pastors to churches are that way. They've been in a church a couple decades and they're still glad they're there and it's generally going well, but, but the sense of romance and love and real, and real zeal for that ministry has diminished. I've never sensed that from Pastor Lane. Uh, he loves this church. He loves the people of this church. He's excited about the church's future. He has a vision for the church's future. And so to talk with him is always that conversation to go back to life point and what God is doing here and how much he loves the people God has assembled here. So to be around your pastor is to be encouraged by the local church and what God is doing in the local church. Now, as we begin to talk a number of months ago about me being in the area and about me preaching for you guys this Sunday, uh, we talked about me doing something a a little different than what I normally do. Yes, I want to turn to a passage of scripture and to open God's word together and to speak to you from a passage of scripture, but also to draw some lines from that text to the story of Midwestern Seminary. And not just the story of Midwestern Seminary though, to draw some lines from Midwestern Seminary to LifePoint Church, and especially to your near-term future as you guys are envisioning the months ahead and what God would call you guys to do here as a church together, especially towards knocking out the remaining debt that you have. So I hope to come on, uh, to come in this morning to encourage you and to strengthen you and to challenge you from scripture. And hopefully that you leave here encouraged as you're thinking more broadly about what God is doing these days in his church, what God is doing these days in this church specifically. So turn me in your Bibles this morning to the gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 16. And I want you to think with me this morning about the fact that Christ 
is building his church. Christ is building his church from Matthew chapter 16. And we're going to consider verses 13 through 20. And then I want to tell the story of Midwestern Seminary briefly, a part of this text, and then draw some lines from Midwestern Seminary to your church as to what we've seen God do there and perhaps what God is doing here in your church in the season ahead. But the main theme is this, Christ is building his church. And let me tell you this morning, folks, that is good news. That is good news. And we live in an era when we need good news. We see signs of bad news all around. We see international conflict. We see the, the Middle East in, in, in absolute, in on, in absolutely on fire these days. Uh, we are here domestically and we have challenges like inflation. Anyone like inflation this morning? Probably not. We see economic challenges at home, but we also see more pressingly, we see social and cultural challenges at home. We look to Washington, we see a lot of dysfunction. We see, see, see an inability for our government to, to move forward and act responsibly and act maturely and act like adults. And so, so we, we look at the news in Washington, it looks like a frat party at times as to what's going on. But then we see signs all around us of, of this nation and this community and this society that, that used to at least, at least somewhat align with biblical truth and biblical values. We see all of that going away. We see folks scratching their heads and asking themselves like, so, so what is a man? What is a woman? What is marriage? Questioning and doubting and undermining the most basic biblical institutions and biblical values and biblical truth statements about human sexuality and gender and marriage, all of these cornerstone issues in society. So it's easy to look at the news, to look at the world around, and frankly, just be discouraged. But I want to remind you this morning from Scripture that God is working that Christ is building his church. And though we see so much darkness, listen to me, we see these pockets of light where God is doing some spectacularly unique things. One of those things has been in Kansas City at the institution I'm privileged to serve. And one of those things is right here in the Ozark area at LifePoint Church, this congregation that you're privileged to be a part of. Read with me beginning in verse 13 of Matthew 16. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said to him, some say John the Baptist and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. The gates of Hades will not overpower it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed 
in heaven. Then he warned his disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. So, so we see this passage this morning, this, 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 this story, this passage that many of us are familiar with. If you've been coming to church over the years, uh, if you were raised in a Christian home, a passage you've encountered before. And it's easy to overread this passage and conclude that this is an enduring promise to every congregation and every time and every place, no matter how foolish they are, no matter how irresponsible they are, no matter how unbiblical they are, that Christ has promised that that particular congregation will never fail. That's not what Christ is saying here. We all know throughout the history of the church in times past, in times present, and indeed in times future, there are local churches, congregations that for one reason or another have faced decline and for one reason or another, many of those have actually faced extinction. So that would be one way to overread this promise that Christ is with us and we can be apathetic and we can be foolish and we can be sinful and we can be unwise and the Lord will just keep his church afloat. That is not what this text is saying. At the same time, it would be, it would be inappropriate to underestimate what this passage is saying and to look around and see Islamic extremism on the march, to look around and see cultural darkness increasingly prevalent, to look around and see churches that are plateaued or declining and think, well, well, well I guess that we all are just victims. I guess that the church is, is in decline. And I guess it doesn't matter how faithful we are, the church is going to be receding. And I say that is to woefully underestimate the promises of God. For 2,000 years, Christ has been building his church. And what began is Jesus calling out some rugged fishermen on the shores of Galilee and assembling them as his disciples, and then stating in this passage, I will build my church, and then going to the cross to, to die for his church, to die for those who would believe in Christ. And then Acts chapter 2, Peter's promise, or Peter's preaching at Pentecost when the church was birthed. And then throughout that Mediterranean region, as, as Paul is taking missionary trips and the apostles are preaching and the church is metastasizing throughout the known world. And then for 2,000 years since, the church has been on the march. But don't think with me this morning just historically or past tense. Don't think that way at all. Think this morning with me presently and locally that Christ is building his church here. And it is an exhilarating reality to think that you are a part as you are here and as you are serving and as you are worshiping and as you are giving and as you are going, you here are a part of that great promise of Christ that he is building his church and come hell or high water as the saying goes Christ's church will endure as long as the Lord would tarry now in these verses this morning we see a fascinating scene right Jesus is there he's with his disciples they're in the region of Caesarea Philippi we know that in that region the the climate is conducive to rest and relaxation we know it's the type of place that that you might go Kind of like I went to Branson this week to get away, to be with those you love, to enjoy a slower pace, to enjoy some beautiful scenery, to, to enjoy the nicer things of life. That's what Jesus is doing with his disciples here. They're pulling away. They're there together. And Jesus then prompts their thinking with this question, who do people say that the son of man is? And what these verses indicate that, that Jesus' disciples in the main are reflecting the assessment in the main of those around Jesus. 
People understood that what our Lord is doing is unlike anything any man has ever done. He's healing the lame. He's curing the paralytic. He's giving sight to the blind. He's unstopping ears. Indeed, he's even raising the dead. He's unlike anyone this world's ever seen. What is more, he's teaching and speaking not like the scribes, not like the Pharisees. He's doing so as one with authority, divine authority. So the disciples here give Jesus the best assessments that modern man has. Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am. Jesus sharpens the question and asks it in a personal, specific, individual way, putting these men on the spot. And let me tell you this morning, brothers and sisters, that's a question each one of us must answer. Well, there's a boy or girl, a teenager, a young adult, a senior adult, those most advanced in years in the room and everyone in between, no one gets to heaven on the family plan. No one gets to heaven because their parent or their son or daughter or their friend was a believer. No one gets to heaven because their daddy was a preacher. No one gets to heaven because their grandfather was a deacon. It's an individual confession that must be made. So Jesus sharpens the question and he says to them, who do you say that I am? And Peter here, who so very often gets it wrong. He gets it right here. Notice verse 16. Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the one the prophets have spoken of. You are the one the sacrificial system foreshadowed. You are the one from childhood we were taught to expect. Every Jewish boy and every Jewish girl was taught from childhood to expect the Messiah who would come. They're looking. They're waiting, they're wanting, they're longing for. Peter says, the one that we've been told to expect, you are him. It's Peter, who so often gets it wrong, he is spectacularly right here. And we are told, though, he is not right based upon his own intuition or his own powers of reason and assessment. Verse 17, Jesus says to him, you are right, Peter, and you are blessed, Peter, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now, notice verse 17. And this is really our money, or, or verse 18. This is our money phrase here this morning. Then Jesus says, I say to you, you are Peter. And upon this rock, this confession, I will build my church. Every one of those words matters. Jesus says, I. This is not a delegated responsibility. He has not assigned this to, to Michael or Gabriel. He's not assigned this to Peter or John or, or Andrew or any of the other disciples. He's not delegated this down the line to popes and priests or preachers and pastors. It's not my responsibility or Pastor Lane's responsibility. No, Christ is saying, I. And do you realize this morning that when you give of yourself and your time and your energies to strengthen and support your church, you are co-laboring with the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And there's a romance to that, beloved, that you're part of something that is not a human institution. They will only go so far as human energy and imagination will take it. No, Christ says, I, I will, not I might or I may be, or if the social currents you know, blow our way, if you do a good demographic study and plant a church in a growing suburb of town. No, Christ is saying, I will build. I love the word build because it conveys the idea of activity, of industry, of busyness. It comes to mind as a construction term, right? I will build. And Christ is saying, I will actively oversee. I will actively engage. I will actively construct this thing that's going to become known as the church. I will build my, my church. It's not your church. It's not my church. It's not the elder's church. It's not the preacher's church. It's not the deacon's church. It's not all of ours church. It's Christ's church. And so many churches function as though the church is just the people's church. And as long as we can get like the majority of people, hopefully a high majority of people to agree on the future or agree on the decisions, then like as long as we agree, then like we can just do it because it's all about us and this is kind of like a sloppy form of democracy. And let me tell you, a church can have a 100% vote and miss the will of God by a thousand miles. A church can have a 100% vote and undertake initiatives or beliefs that are entirely unbiblical. The responsibility of the church is not to sort out what we want to do, it's to sort out what Christ wants us to do, you see? Jesus says, I will build my church. What is the church? The church is those individuals called out of the world to come together in covenant communities just like LifePoint. This word here, ecclesia, literally means the called out ones, the ones who've been called out by Christ, called out by the Spirit to come together. So when you become a believer, you, you think humanistically, simplistically, that I, you, know, you repented of your sins and believed in Jesus, and yes, you did. Praise God. But something even far grander is taking place. The Spirit is working and Christ is building his church. And he's put his affection on you and called you out of the world to be, to be a part of his church, to put on his jersey, to play on his team, to be with his people. You see, Jesus is saying, I will build my church. Now, notice here, the promise is the church. Not a parachurch ministry like I lead. Not just like a women's Bible study or a student ministry or senior adult ministry like you may be a part of. All of those may be healthy and good and faithful and, and used by God to strengthen the church, to build the church, to deepen the church, to grow the church. But if any of those sub-ministries or para-ministries begin to distract from the church or take the place of the church or mislead the church, heaven forbid, then that's an altogether different matter. Jesus is saying, I will build my church. The gates of Hades, death itself, will not overpower it. 
Now, I said I wanted to draw some lines from this passage to Midwestern Seminary and to your church, and, and I hope to do that this morning. I want you to think with me in that regard. Pastor Lane mentioned what God has done at Midwestern Seminary the past 11 years now, and I want to share that story a bit for you and then draw some lines from our work to your work and then back again to this text. Because I believe the reason why God has chosen to bless the work of Midwestern Seminary and Spurgeon College so generously the past 11 years goes back to a fundamental reason, and it's this. We never have lost sight of why we exist. We believe we exist for the church. And we believe that as we are dedicated to serving the church and training pastors for the church and training missionaries for the church and training counselors for the church and all that we do for the church, as long as we can draw a direct line from our work 2 verse 18, Christ promised to build his church that he will continue to bless and to extend our work. So what's going on in Kansas City these days? Let me tell you. Southern Baptists have six seminaries. Six seminaries. The oldest one began in 1859. The youngest one, Midwestern Seminary in Kansas City, began almost exactly 100 years later in 1957. If you know much about our work, you know that one of those is in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, one of those seminaries is in Fort Worth, Texas. One of those seminaries is in Wake Forest, North Carolina. One of those seminaries is in New Orleans, Louisiana. And uh, one of those seminaries is in, is in the Los Angeles area of California. Well, Midwestern Seminary was founded in 1957, the sixth and, and youngest and final seminary of, of, of Southern Baptist. And uh, when we were founded in 1957, I wasn't there. Just want to clarify that. I was not there. Blaine was. I wasn't. <laughs> I wasn't there. But in 1957, Southern Baptists fought over where Midwestern Seminary would be placed. Imagine that Southern Baptist fighting over something. And so the joke was Midwestern was a seminary founded in controversy and that it existed in controversy. So some people wanted the seminary in St. Louis, others in Chicago, others in Denver, others in Jacksonville, Florida. And so they decided to put Midwestern Seminary in Kansas City because they, for three reasons. Number one, to alleviate the enrollment burdens on Louisville, 500 miles to the east, and Fort Worth, 500 miles to the south. Second reason was to be able to serve the underserved churches in the region, this very region like we're gathered in this morning. Third reason was to be positioned on the perimeter of Southern Baptist life to start new works into the, the pioneer regions of, of the West and of, of the North, the Northern Midwest. And so placed in Kansas City in 1957 with fireworks about that location. And then just as the paint was drying on the walls, a controversy erupted known as the Elliott Controversy. And it was a controversy based upon the fact that an Old Testament professor named Ralph Elliott began to believe and to teach that the Old Testament, especially the book of Genesis and the creation story and those early chapters of Genesis, Genesis that was all mythological, that it wasn't true. And it became this huge fight in Southern Baptist life. And it was a justified fight because Southern Baptists ought not be paying money for people to teach their ministers the Bible isn't true. Amen. Well, anyway, what happened is by the time you get to 1962, Ralph Elliott is gone, but that controversy hung over the seminary for years. And so literally no joke to this day, on occasion, I'll get a letter every couple of years from someone somewhere that's come across a Ralph Elliott book and they're writing to me to complain about this man who doesn't believe the Bible teaching at Midwestern Seminary. And I will write back very sweetly, dear sir or ma'am, he hasn't taught here since 1962, but I do appreciate your concern. So it was controversy, controversy. 
location controversy, theological controversy, mission controversy, and then by the time you get to the 1980s, that broader controversy in Southern Baptist life about the Bible. The institution was marked as a liberal institution, and it was, professors not believing Scripture, not teaching Scripture. Well, in the 80s and 90s, the seminary reoriented itself theologically, conservatively. So by the time you get into the mid to late 1990s, the seminary's faculty was comprehensively composed of those who believed the Bible was the Word of God. The controversy was still there. Then it was a matter of administrative controversy, of stewardship controversy, of leadership controversy. And so the seminary had just kind of bounced along to, as pastor said, by the time you get into the mid-2000s, Southern Baptists were seriously considering closing it all together. It had looked like a 50-year-long dumpster fire that just needed to be put out. Well, we, my wife and I then, we were living in Louisville. We had five very young children enjoying a very happy life. And the search committee reached out to me uh, in May of 2012. It was not on my radar at all. But, but God began to work and we sensed a calling here. And I want to share a few things which God has done. Not, the point is not that I'm a great leader. The point is God is really kind. The point is Christ is building his church. The point is I want to invite you to dream with me this morning, not just about Midwestern and not just about what God has done here in the past, but about what he can do in the future as well. So what's taking place? Over the past 11 years, we've grown from an institution of right at 1,000 students. This year, we'll finish as an institution of over, of over 5,000 students. Folks, that's in a, a generation when college enrollments generally are declining Seminary enrollments generally are declining. In fact, the gold standard accrediting agency in North America, known as the ATS, the Association of Theological Schools, they recently did a study that over the past five years, only seven seminaries out of more than 300 in North America, only seven seminaries have grown consecutively year over year. And we are the only one that had grown appreciably. So what's going on? As we've been clear about why we exist, that vision is resonating with churches just like this. And folks are saying, I want to go study there. So our enrollment has exploded over the past 10 years. What is more, God has been kind with resources. As Pastor Lane has mentioned, over the past 10 years, we've added or renovated over $50 million in a buildings. And all of that God has given us. We have $0 in debt as we meet this morning. And that's a big thing. Okay. God's given us a world-class faculty where every faculty member with the fullness of their heart believes the Bible is the word of God, believes the great commission is still what should animate us, and we infuse our students with the great commission, believe the local church is primary, believe that, 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 that God is real clear in scripture about who a man is and who a woman is and what marriage is. Believe that God is real clear in scripture about, about, about the dignity of, of life mattering. Believe that God is real clear in Scripture about how the church is to be ordered. Believe that God is real clear in Scripture that Jesus is the only way of salvation. So we have a, a faculty who holistically, with full hearts, believe these great truths that we as Baptists hold dear. He's given us an incredible enrollment. He's blessed us financially. He's given us a sterling faculty. He's given us an institution that's on mission for him. And he continues to bless our work. So what are we seeing take place? Why is that the case? Let me tell you just a few reasons here to, to connect some dots for you. Why is God blessing? I've already mentioned because I believe, number one, because as an institution, we are committed to the local church and Christ is building his church. Thus, he's blessing us as we seek to extend his church. I believe also God is blessing us because we are convictionally clear. 
We know who we are. We know what the Bible is. We cherish the great doctrinal truths of the Christian faith. We believe the Baptist faith and message. We believe the Danvers statement on biblical manhood and womanhood. We believe the Chicago statement on biblical inerrancy. We believe the Nashville statement on human sexuality and gender. And in a world where everyone is losing their minds, in a world where churches are falling away and otherwise Christian institutions are falling away, we are saying, no, we stand here confidently on the truths of Scripture. So we're convictionally clear we are on mission serving the church. We are clear about our our vision as to where we are going. We are doing those things and God is blessing those things. But also he's chosen to bless us as we've done that. He's chosen to bless us in a very keen way on the stewardship front. And I want to share you just a few little snippets here. And I hope that it will encourage you. And I want to challenge you along these lines. Go with me back to Kansas City circa 2012. This time of the year, in fact, I was elected October 15th of 2012. The search committee, when they interviewed my wife and I in these different sessions, they never brought us to campus. And looking back, it's pretty clear why. Because the campus was in absolute disrepair. I mean, the parking lot looked like Dresden. It was just bombed out. Terrible. And uh, God called us there. We were a young couple, young kids, and just went full of faith and eagerness, but uh, had no idea the full measure of what we're getting into. So it's fall of 2012. I'm unpacking my first day in the office. I kid you not. My first day in the office is our 10-year accreditation review. So that happens once a decade, and it is the most thorough series of assessments and tests an institution can undergo. And my first day in the office, we have our 10-year accreditation review. And the creditors know that the seminary is financially in an existential state. They know the leadership transition taking place before. They know the board is divided. They know the, the morale is low. They know all these challenges. That's where we are. The campus itself is in disarray. The buildings are in disrepair. And on top of all that, we have debt that we cannot pay back. To make matters worse, I'm, I'm, I'm unpacking my office and the, the then interim business officer comes to me and says, we don't know if we can meet, meet payroll next week. Well, that's never encouraging news to hear, right? No one told me that. And so what do we do? Well, we begin to pray and we begin to work. And over the course of that first year, a couple that to this day has never been to campus, to this day has never been to Kansas City, But a couple that lives in the deep south knew of our work and wanted to support our work. And out of the blue, they sent in a $500,000 check, which is almost exactly what we needed just to pay our bills. A few months later, they sent another $500,000 check, which is just what we needed to pay our bills. I mean, we are at this point crawling through broken glass to make ends meet financially, figuratively speaking. About that time, we have this debt overhanging us, the debt that the school took out to borrow money to complete a chapel project that had been stalled out for several years. Well, I'm having lunch with a very dear brother, dear man in Oklahoma City area, and I have this debt hanging over me that I know we got to pay back, and we have to pay it back within three years. It's on a, a balloon note. We have to pay it back within three years, and we have no money to do so. And it's a, it's a million dollars, which in the grand scheme of things, institutional life doesn't sound like that much money. But let me tell you, if your dad broke, a million dollars is a lot of money. And I'm having lunch with a man. He says to me, he says, Jason, what are the seminary's needs? And he said, you know, I'm the kind of guy I'll help out in ways most people won't. I'm willing to pay back, to pay off debt that someone else took out. 
His name's Gene Downing. I said, Gene, has willingness ever met need before like this? I mean, I could kiss you right now. I told him about the debt. And he said, he said let's pray about it. And he called me back a couple weeks later. And he said, we're, we're, we're going to pay it back for you. Paid off that debt. Boom. We're beginning to walk a little bit. Then... A few months later, we had a building need of about $2.5 million. And I was so shy. I was so timid at this point. Honestly, I was lacking faith, candidly. I knew God could do it, but, but I, I just, it, it all seemed so impossible to me. And I, I had lunch with a couple who loved the seminary, loved me and my wife. They had never given to the school, though, but they loved what we were doing. And I'm sharing with them about this $2.5 million need, hoping like maybe they would give like a, a little fraction of it. He calls me a few days later and says, Jason, God's put on our heart to give all $2.5 million. So what we're seeing is, is God is touching some people who he's blessed financially and putting in their hearts to be a blessing to us. Fast forward a couple years later. At this point, we're really beginning to, to grow and we have momentum and God is blessing and school is growing by leaps and bounds. But, but we have, again, we have no amenities and God puts in our heart to give us, for us to have a student center for our students, a cafeteria, a gymnasium, coffee shop meeting space, all the types of things you would imagine in a student center. And we see the project is about a $14 million project, and that's $14 million we don't have. But we're praying God will give it to us. And um, we are praying God will give us a $7 million lead gift to get us halfway there. Have no idea. Again, guys, I'm telling you, I like, have no idea if God may do it. But we believe it's been our heart to pray about and um, there's a family in Oklahoma City, a different family in Oklahoma City, and their, their names is the Mathena family. And this, this is all very public, so I'm not like, sharing something inappropriate. And uh, the Mathena family is led by a man, man named Harold Mathena. And some of you know him. He's preached a lot in southern Missouri over the years. And he's now almost 90 years old. And for decades, Mr. Mathena was a bivocational preacher. He preached revivals and preached in little churches. And then he did just enough in the oil business basically to provide for his family. And for decades, it was that way. It was he and his wife were the only two employees of this oil company, and they made a little money in the oil business and enough money in the oil business to kind of provide for their families. He was a, 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 an evangelist and preaching in small churches. And so he did this kind of a little bit of business, a little bit of, a little bit of ministry over the decades. Well, in the early 2000s, um, he has a son who was more business-minded, and the son joined the, the family business. And in the mid-2000s, as the sun gets in the family business, the oil market takes off and fracking is taking place, as many of you have heard of. And so this oil business goes from kind of being a nothing business to growing overnight to dozens and then hundreds of employees and becomes a, a major source of money. Well, they sell the oil business like in 2013 for $230 million. The first thing they do is drop a $23 million tithe check in the offering plate lane. And so wouldn't you like to be on the counting committee that week, by the way? And so that's just, just hey, God's blessed us, and we're going to give, first and foremost, going to give to God's church. And so just the, the, this begins with a $23 million tithe check. Well, I don't know all this at the time. I just know God's put in our heart to have a student center. And we meet, I go, and to the long story, God gives us a relationship with his family. I go and meet with his family. And just, I mean, I, I'm like, so I'm just humbly eking out, you know, could you, would you maybe sort of pray about this need? We, a couple weeks later, calls back, God's put on our heart to give you $7 million to help make this happen. He gave us the rest of the money. And what I'm saying to you today is, I'm speaking to you this morning as a man whose heart is full of gratitude and amazement because every step of the way, God has not just met our needs, he's blown my mind away. 
of his generosity. And we have sought to faithfully steward that, to put that blessing back into the church, to help churches just like LifePoint grow and serve and minister. Now, I want to draw some lines from this passage in my last several minutes here, some lines from this passage to the Midwestern story to you this morning, okay? I'm not a professional fundraiser. Pastor Lane didn't ask me to come in and do a fundraising sermon. That's not what I'm doing. But I am trying to speak from God's word and my experience to you as to where you are in this ministry moment. I'll give you a few specific words to reflect on. Number one, Christ is building his church. And the most important ministry you can be a part of is your local church. I'm saying that to you this morning as a guy who leads a ministry that we really appreciate receiving gifts. But I'm saying it to you with full integrity saying, if you never give to Midwestern Seminary, that can be okay. It can't be okay if you're not giving regularly to your local church. Christ is building his church and you get to be a part of that. You get to be a part of that here. The second thing I want to say to you this morning is, as you think about the season ahead, paying off debt can be a beautiful thing. Scripture teaches us that the debtor is slave to the lender. The borrower is slave to the lender. And I know you guys are praying about what it looks like to move forward and knock out some debt that's still out there. And I want to say to you this morning, that's always a good thing to do. What is more, I'll say to you this morning, paying off debt from the past is a particularly sweet thing. And I'm going to share this with you personally because about seven years ago, our church lane, the church remembers of, they undertook a process to pay off debt. And my wife and I were there and we were receiving presentations and we loved our church. We wanted to help. But I will be honest with you. My first thought was, okay, someone else took out this debt, not me. Uh, I didn't vote on the debt. Someone else voted for the debt that took place before we lived in Kansas City. And I wasn't resistant to that, but I just thought this, this, this kind of struck me at first like another, another group's decision and thus another group's responsibility. But God put on our heart as we were praying about it, my wife and I, you know what? Actually, we weren't here five, seven years ago when this debt was taken out. But we have benefited from that debt take, being taken out. We've benefited from having a place to worship in. We've benefited from having a student ministry and building and resources and facilities for our teenagers to be a part of. We've benefited from the children's ministry our kids are a part of here. And so our minds went from this wasn't our decision to borrow money to our hearts going to, no, it wasn't our decision, but we have benefited from it. And though we weren't here to give when it started on that beginning campaign, God has us here now to help pay off and support where the ministry is now that we're benefiting from so much, you see. The last thing I want to say to you is, is, is just a very heartfelt along these lines. I've learned over the years in the local church and at Midwestern Seminary, for a church to move forward and to achieve the financial goals it has, please hear me here carefully. It takes God's people not just giving from their income, but giving from their assets, okay? Many of us, perhaps many of you, even faithful givers in the room today, you think of your giving almost like a divine income tax. I give the federal government 30% roughly. I give the state a couple percent roughly. I give the locality a percent or two roughly. I give God 10% exactly. And that's how you think about it. And you think of it, okay, once I've paid my taxes to the government, I've kind of paid the God tax, 
I've done that on the income side, then these assets I accumulate, they're really mine to do with what I want. The capital appreciation that my family is benefiting from, that's really us to do what we want. And I want to challenge you this morning in a sweet but direct way to scuttle that thinking. See all of what God has given you, both on the income side and the asset appreciation side. See that as God's blessing. And see that not just as a moment you steward when you get it, but as an ongoing stewardship throughout life as you have it. And for this church, I'm telling you, I don't know your giving records. I have no idea who gives what or where you guys are financially. But I'm telling you, this church is like every church for you to fully step into all God wants you to do and accomplish. It will take some of you, it will take many of you making the conscious choice not just to give from your income, but to give generously from your assets. And if you will do that, I'm confident in the season ahead, you guys will not just meet your giving goals for this campaign. You will exceed them. I'm telling you, God can do it, you can do it. And if God's people here will come together, you will do it together. So what does this mean? Here's what it means. It means Christ is building his church. It means there's a lot of bad news out there, but there are pockets of amazing news. Midwestern is one of those places. LifePoint is one of those places. In the season ahead, if you will think as stewards... Your greatest days of ministry are just ahead of you.